Good morning, church. Good to be with you this morning to start the season of Advent together. And for uh, the season of Advent, we're going to continue on in the letter uh, to the Romans, but we're going to look at the last five chapters of the letter to the Romans in sort of a unique way each week that'll build on itself. So today, let us prepare ourselves to hear selected readings from Romans chapters 12 and 13. Paul writes, Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone of you, not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think with sober discernment as God has distributed to each of you a measure of faith. Love must be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another with mutual love, showing eagerness in honoring one another. Do not lag in zeal. Be enthusiastic in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Endure in suffering. Persist in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Pursue hospitality. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and if there's any other commandment, are summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this because we know the time that it is already the hour for us to awake from sleep for our excuse me for our salvation is now nearer than when we became believers the night has advanced toward dawn the day is near so then we must lay aside the works of darkness and put on the weapons of light let us live decently as in the daytime not carousing in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in discord and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to arouse its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment, we're going to be quiet together. Would you speak to us, each one, about your word? Father, we need your help. On our own, we cannot be the kind of people who can obey the list of commandments that I just read. The imperatives laid before us. We can't do it on our own. We need you, Lord. We need you to come and fill us and move in us, even to be able to understand what we've just heard. So have your way in the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
Have you ever walked around an instrument shop, a, a, you know, a place where you go to buy instruments? I don't know why I needed to explain the term instrument shop. <laughs> you know, <laughs> a store where you buy. It's, it's a wonder when you're walking around this place looking at all of these brand new instruments. It hardly matters what kind of instrument it, it is, you know, whether brass instruments or guitars or whatever. They are beautiful looking at them each one even the most basic models is just a, a wonder of engineering and design uh, it takes an artist to craft a guitar or a trumpet or a saxophone but of course there's a beauty about looking at them that's more than just the instruments, more than just what you can see with your eyes. Every single instrument, when you're looking at it in a store, holds in itself almost a limitless potential. You look at it and you imagine all of what it could do, all of what it could sound like. In the right hands, that lifeless object can bring life to the world. It can beautify the world. And of course, today we're starting our countdown to Christmas. And uh, I, I know a few of you throughout your lives have received instruments as gifts at Christmas time. How many of you have received an instrument, either birthday or, oh, yeah, wow, that's great. And, you know, that's a nice privilege. Instruments are expensive, I understand. But when you receive an instrument as a gift, there's so much going on there. These are, these are usually gifts that are given upon request. You know, you, you don't just surprise someone with a tuba, you know? <laughs> um, it's you, usually, you know that the person really wants to, to learn this instrument, to grow in it. And so the giver has decided to make generally a pretty big sacrifice to give an instrument. And when you receive an instrument, it's thrilling. It's a thrilling moment because not, you're not just holding that beautiful object in your hands. It's, it's not just that it's yours now. It's that you are imagining yourself playing it. You're imagining what it can become. You are basking in the future beauty of that instrument. You're imagining giving that beauty to others. Instruments can be life-changing life gifts, both for what they are and for what they promise. There's just one problem with all of this. For the novice, for someone who's never played that tuba before, what an instrument actually promises is literal years away from the moment you receive it. An instrument can be life-changing, but only if you give it your life. It's one thing to walk around a piano store with the salesperson who happens to be this master pianist. It's another thing to sit down at the keys yourself if you've never played. The gift of an instrument can quickly feel like a burden, a, a heavy weight. It, it, it can expose you. You're imagining it sounding like one thing, and then you try to make a sound on it, and it sounds very, very different. An instrument calls for constant, long devotion, training your mind, your ear, coordinating 
your body. Here's what I'm saying. Every time an instrument is given as a gift, there's a tangible gift. There's an actual gift. That gift calls for a devoted life. And it has the constant promise of a beautiful future. A tangible gift which calls for a devoted life and has the promise of a beautiful future. The kingdom of God is like an instrument. So as I said, this Advent, we're going to survey the last five chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans. So far, the first 11 chapters have been an explanation of the news about Jesus, news that Paul devoted his life to spreading far and wide. And he, he lays out that news in wonderful, sometimes mystifying detail in the first 11 chapters. But starting in chapter 12, where we read a bit of it today, Paul shifts his focus a bit. He's no longer talking about the news itself. Now he's talking about the sort of life that we can live once that news is ours, once we've received that news. The first 11 chapters of Romans are about the gift of righteousness that's given through Jesus. It's kind of intangible. It's hard to understand. The last five are a more tangible gift that Jesus gives. The last five chapters describe the gift of community community. The first thing Jesus gives is himself, but when he gives us himself, he also gives us each other, each other. Why is this important for Paul? Let me remind you why Paul wrote this letter. He has so far covered in his life the north and east banks of the Mediterranean Sea. He's traveled all around with the news that the long-awaited Jewish Messiah had arrived and was offering God's grace and peace to anyone who believes in him. And now that he's covered all of that ground, Paul's sights are set westward. He wants to go to the ends of the earth, which in his mind is Spain. And the place to set up shop if you want to travel all the way to the coast, all the way to the edge of the empire, is in the capital city, in Rome. So he wants to travel west to Rome. Now, Paul often traveled to cities that had never heard the news before, and he was the one who brought it. But the path to Rome was well-trodden by believers. In fact, the church in Rome was probably in its second generation, so to speak. You know, the, the first generation of believers in Rome were probably people who, who a couple decades before had been on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And there on the day of Pentecost, they see these crazy guys flood out of the upper room and they hear Peter's speech and they're compelled by the power of what they're hearing. And they, they cry out, what must we do to be saved? And, and Peter says, As, repent, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they, they travel back to Rome with this news. It, it probably was a pretty old church. And it started off with passionate Jewish people. 
people who, who believed. They had been in Jerusalem on pilgrimage, and, and then they had discovered that Jesus was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. And so they go back, and now they're practicing their Jewish faith more fully, more completely. But a few years later, the young Roman church was torn apart when the emperor banished all the Jews from Rome. The only people left in the church were a few of the Roman converts who had heard the news about Jesus and joined the movement. And they were there left, you know, the, the founders, the leaders of their community are gone. They're left to pick up the pieces and figure out how to do this. And so several years later, when the Jews are allowed back in, they found a community which had lost its distinctively Jewish flavor. It was, it was very different than it used to be, and tensions mounted. I mean, they're saying, this isn't my church. This isn't how we do things. And so word spread. In fact, many of these people had met Paul somewhere along the way, and they got word to him. We're not sure how to navigate these challenges. We have a Gentile way of doing things, a, you know, a Roman way, and a Jewish way of doing things. So Paul's letter that he wrote to Rome served a few purposes. Yeah, he wanted to, to introduce his way of teaching the gospel to that church so that they would get on board and support his mission to Spain. But he also found it necessary to explain to them how the news about Jesus created common ground for all, for the Jew first and also the Gentile. So again, what is the news? The news is that Jesus is the long-awaited Jewish Messiah who did not achieve victory through conquest, but rather through his own sacrificial death and miraculous resurrection. And anyone who puts their faith in him joins with him in his death and resurrection and is given the free gift of God's righteousness. That's that's the news. That's what Paul spends 11 chapters taking apart and putting back together again. Hallelujah. Our relationship with God has been restored and will be preserved forever. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Nothing. Nothing. That's what he spends 11 chapters proving. But in chapter 12, Paul's emphasis shifts from the news that grounds us to the life that we can live inside of that news. It shifts from the news to the life that we can live because of that news. And that life has one overwhelming feature. It's a life that we're supposed to live together. It's a communal life. The news about Jesus reveals the righteousness of God. And for God, righteousness is relational. It's relational. It restores our relationship with him and with each other. If we were to ask, who is, who's the righteous one? Who is righteous? The righteous one is the person who loves God and other people as they really are, sees their glory, dignity, and beauty, and acts accordingly. The gospel includes, in other words, a visible, tangible, wonderful gift. And it's the people sitting all around you right now. That's the gift of the gospel. But enjoying that gift requires 
a special kind of devoted life. There's an instrument in the room. And sometimes when we try to play, it sounds real bad, <laughs> doesn't it? So what sort of devoted life does it call for? Paul writes in 12, and in, in the beginning of chapter 12, he writes, therefore, I exhort you by the mercies of God. And then later he says, by the grace given to me, I say to you, I exhort you by the mercies of God, by the grace given to me, I say to you. Paul, Paul is not exhorting the Roman Christians on his own. He's not standing on his own achievements. He's not saying he's a master of this community. He's, he's not saying he knows how to play this instrument perfectly. He's not claiming his, his track record as, as a Pharisee who has studied the scriptures for his whole life. He, he's not a skilled musician who was merely recruited into Jesus's band. That's not what Paul is saying. Throughout his letters, Paul stands again and again on this title that, you know, that he's, is, he's an apostle. And that doesn't mean he earned something or became a master of something. The term apostle for Paul is a story of grace. He was a sinner. He was an enemy of Christians. But the risen Jesus came to him, called him, and sent him. Apostle means sent one. And so he exhorts the Roman church through that mindset. He received mercy, and now he has a megaphone of mercy for them. The community Jesus gives us is a gift because it is a community founded on mercy. And inside of that mercy, we can exhort one another to a certain kind of life. Exhort, that's kind of a kind of a churchy word, isn't it? Exhort. When do you exhort outside of church? Has anyone exhorted anyone this week? Yeah, okay. So to exhort, that's to call someone out of a certain way of living into another way. All right? A community would, the, so, so that's what Paul's doing. He's exhorting. But, but a community would hardly be a joyful place to be if, if all we did was exhort one another all the time without mercy. As if we were a community who, who is, you know, we think it's our job to just mold and shape and influence each other all of the time. And you know this, you know what this is like. Think about it in terms of an instrument. No one who's given a beautiful guitar will devote themselves to go back to the guitar again and again, to play it over and over again, until someone says, hey, Mistakes are okay. Mistakes are part of it. It's good to sound bad at the beginning. That's the beauty of an instrument. No, no one will enjoy learning an instrument unless there's someone around them celebrating the little successes. I mean, you don't just jump to Led Zeppelin. You got to play Mary Had a Little Lamb first. You know, that's the deal. Like, what? We have to start slowly. Our, our exhortation has got to be within the blanket of grace. A community of faith can easily become legalistic. 
We can, we can decide that there's a certain way of behaving, a certain culture, a certain set of rules that if you want to be in this band, you got to follow those rules. you got to dress a certain way, think a certain way, speak a certain way. And until you do that, you better sit quietly and listen to the experts play. That, that's what a community of faith can easily become. It can become stratified where there's the musicians and, and the audience. This kind of focus on behavior modification, it, it could appear to be changing lives, but it usually looks past real people in the present moment and shames them for, for being a novice on their instrument. It says, we'll really love you and accept you if you can play better if you can change in these ways. When I take my own superficial measures of holiness and expect them to be the quick fruit of the gospel in your life, perhaps I even exclude or disregard someone because they're not being shaped in the ways I think are most important. I'm not being guided by the mercies of God. I'm not exhorting with mercy. Uh, you'll get used to hearing this name today. There's a theologian, one of my favorites, Shirley Guthrie. And he says that if the gospel is true, the church is a community of people who know they are sinners, freely admit that they are not good or superior, and take responsibility for their sinfulness without blaming someone else for it. He says, the church is the only club in the world that accepts as members only those who are not qualified to belong to it. Isn't that great? It's the only club in the world that accepts as members only those who are not qualified to belong to it. If you already think you're an awesome musician, we don't want you in the band. Or as Paul says it, by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you not to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think with sober discernment as God has distributed to each of you a measure of faith. You see, everything we have, everything we could possibly give to one another first had to be given to us. So we don't exhort without mercy but on the other hand, the, the gospel will not allow us to practice a form of mercy that is void of exhortation. We, we don't remain utterly passive in each other's lives. We play together. We join our song together. After all, what is Romans 12 through 16? Paul is exhorting them. It's a, it's a boatload of commands. Here's how to live in light of the gospel. He's calling them to live a certain way, to drop certain behaviors. He's going to challenge them super deeply on topics as diverse as politics and what to eat for dinner. He's going to cover all of it at the end of Romans. This is not community just for community's sake. It is community for the sake of a certain song, the message, the news, the gospel that we proclaim. The way this community acts will show what sort of king Jesus is. A uh, classically trained musician named Dietrich Bonhoeffer described the gift of community in his little book, Life Together. He says, what love is, 
only Christ tells us in his word. Contrary to all my own opinions and convictions, Jesus Christ will tell me what love toward the brethren really is. The other person needs to be loved for what he is, as one for whom Christ became man, died and rose again, for whom Christ bought forgiveness of sins and eternal life. I must meet him only as the person that he already is in Christ's eyes. So the mercy of God forms and shapes our community. I experience Jesus himself when I am devoted to you in mutual love. When I love you without hypocrisy. I mean, gosh, we could spend weeks just on that little idea. Let love be without hypocrisy. Love must be without hypocrisy. What does that mean? That means at least I, I, I bring myself as I really am to you without shame or hiding. And I welcome you as you really are without expecting you to hide in shame or pretend to be something that you're not. And when my love for you is simply that, simply love for you, not love meant to get something out of you, that's love without hypocrisy. And I experience real transformation when you draw me to Jesus. When we go to him together, compelled by his love and kindness. We're, we're not transformed when we're told, you gotta, you got to measure up, you got to shape up, you got to play better, you got to conform to some human standard. Only as we come together do we actually learn to play the instrument that Christ has given us. Because it's this, it's community. The people sitting around you are the tangible gift that is given to you, and their value is beyond the world's finest grand piano. You cannot learn to play without merciful exhortation. Shirley Guthrie goes on. He says, how can I know that the forgiveness, love, and help of God in Christ are real if I do not experience them through the community of people who are God's people? How can I be a Christian if I do not participate in the life and work of the community, gathered and empowered by God's Spirit to share with others the forgiveness, love, and help they themselves have received? Whoever tries to do without the church tries to do without Christ. Whoever is too good or too spiritual for the church, with all its weaknesses and faults, is too good or too spiritual for Christ himself, the God who sent him, and the Holy Spirit who continues his work. This is where we take up the tangible instrument that's been given to us. But every instrument, no matter how long you play it, promises a more beautiful future. And seeing it draws us back to the gift again and again. Uh, in my childhood, we had a piano in the house, um, just, you know, a basic piano. Um, and several years ago, through sort of a strange twist in, in the family story, that piano moved in with, uh, with my family, moved into our house. Now, this was a strange twist since the one person in my childhood home who had nothing to do with that piano is standing before you today. All right, so it's just, how did it end up there? Well, because my parents knew Erin and knew what she's about. So that piano's there. It's an old piano. It had been through many moves and through several households. And 
Now it was in our home. And, and, and it was facing another generation of kids, another generation of people banging on it and sitting on it and spilling things on it. And so after a couple of years in our house, Aaron called someone we desperately needed, a piano tuner. I mean, the thing, it, it sounded bad. And when he opened it up, it's one of those where you kind of open up this big lid and, and there's all the strings in front of you. We were shocked at what we saw. Small paper and plastic toys everywhere. There was a spatula inside of the piano, a full-on kitchen spatula. We were like, what in the world? And of course, so, and you know, it needed major work in terms of the tuning and he got to work on it and, and it's beautiful. If you ever have opened, if you've never opened up a piano, just next time you're around one, open it up. Every key actually plays three strings and those strings have to be uh, coordinated with each other just right. You know, it's, it's remarkable how finely tuned a basic piano has to be. So it's, it's beautiful on the inside and, and he's working on all the strings and he's, you know, of course his ears trained and, and he works for hours and finally he's done and he closes the piano. But the last thing that a good piano tuner will do if he comes to your house, he or she, is they'll sit in front of it and they'll show you what they've done. And he starts playing on this thing. And my gosh, the sounds that filled our home were unlike it. I mean, whoa, we're all looking at this thing, this huge piece of furniture, you know, in the corner of our living room. We're looking at it with brand new eyes. We couldn't believe what this piano sounded like. It was unbelievable what we heard. Here was a master playing freshly tuned screens, uh, strings. You know, each key is hitting those strings. The glory of the piano was on full display. And you know what it was doing to my family? It was inviting us in. It was giving us hope for what we could do on that piano. With that same hope, Paul writes, do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. When Paul talks about using the gifts of the gospel, he often holds two realities in tension. The first is this present world where the instrument kind of sounds bad. It's, it's my house when, when I sit down and play the one chord I know on the piano. You know, that's... That's this present world. It's, it's actually full of cheap imitations of the music, things that offer immediate rewards without the exposure and sacrifice that are demanded by an instrument. But when we hear the music that lies dormant inside of us, waiting to be played, we remember what we really are. A minute ago, we heard Shirley Guthrie say that the church is a strange club because we know that we're sinners. That's what brings us together. We know that we're sinners. But he doesn't leave it there. He says the church doesn't merely know we're sinners. He continues, it is a community of dissatisfied sinners. 
They are gathered together not to justify their present way of life or to advertise their piety, but to admit publicly that they need to be forgiven for what they are, want to change, and need help. And, and when we think about how Paul is thinking about all of this, this is where his Jewish background is actually really important for his understanding of the news about Jesus. Why was the news both something that gave us mercy for a devoted life now and something that we looked forward to? Remember, the news wasn't merely that Jesus was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, but it was that the long-awaited Jewish Messiah had been appointed the Son of God in power, according to the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection from the dead. That's the full sentence of his news. That's the headline. He has been appointed son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus' entire claim to being the king that the Jewish people had long been waiting for rested on his resurrection. His resurrection. The resurrection wasn't just a neat trick to make people take a second look at him. That's not what it was. It was the beginning of the fulfillment of a big, huge promise that God had made to his people centuries beforehand, that they would be set free from death themselves, that they would experience resurrection. Jesus's resurrection was not an end. It was a beginning, a beginning that guaranteed an end we're still waiting for. For Paul, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead means death itself will be defeated for all of us. The fact that, that he played a perfectly tuned piano means that all of our instruments will be perfectly tuned one day. The news about Jesus doesn't merely create a community of merciful exhortation. It, it creates a community that is held together and driven by hope that the things of this world which lead to death are passing away. So when Paul calls the Romans to not be conformed to this world, but be renewed by the transforming of their minds, he intends for them to remind each other again and again that the coming of Christ the first time means that he's coming a second time. We are, we are a community who looks back at the work of Christ in order to believe the future with Christ. And so Paul says in the middle of chapter 13, we do all of this because we know the time, that it is already the hour for us to awake from sleep, for our salvation is now nearer than when we, than when we became believers. Church, there is no place, no activity, nothing we can do that is a clearer example, a clearer manifestation of everything I've been trying to say to you today than the table of the Lord, where we take communion. Here, we come desperate for mercy. Here, we bring our out-of-tune, broken instruments that we don't know how to play, and we offer them to the Master. Here is our weekly reminder of what we sound like together. We come to one table. No one, is, no one is invited before anyone else. We're all invited together. We all receive together. We all come longing for a change. But when we hear the words of Jesus and come to the table, we find something that is altogether unexpected. 
We are the instrument. And a day is coming when the master will play us for all the world. This is the preview. When we feast together, we hear the song. In this meal, we proclaim the mystery of our faith, that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. On the very night that our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take it and eat it, all of you. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We hear the song that he means to play through us. Let's pray together. Father, once in a while, we get a little preview. Once in a while, by your spirit, we find that we're in tune with each other. We find that we're, that we're following the same melody. We find that we're on the same tempo once in a while. And those are the moments, Lord, when your spirit has come and is showing us who we really are giving us a glimpse of what we can be. And I pray, Lord, that as my brothers and sisters come to this table, they would find in and of themselves that they are part of your grand orchestra, preparing to play your song for the whole world. So, Lord, call us to the table. Exhort us out of our seats with our broken, out-of-tune instruments and show us what a master can do with it. In Jesus' name, amen.